Hi, welcome. This is Dr. John Martini. This is one of the most amazing and inspiring shows that you can listen into. If you want to be on the edge of your seats, if you want to open up your heart, if you want to expand your mind, and you want to meet incredible people, stay tuned because you're just about to experience a transformative radio show that will change your life. And you're listening to the Dr. Pat Show is coming up right next. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. Talk radio to thrive by. Powerful, inspiring, and coming to you live, bringing you stories of people like you and me, busting through and living life full out. Get ready to dare to wonder what your life would be like if you knew you could not fail. All right, everybody, we have been talking about what we are building in our technology and broadcasting, and you heard me refer to it as AI. Then I got like a 100 emails about what the heck am I talking about? But you know what? I am not that technical person. I'm the person that has an idea. Michelle is joining us here today. Michelle bookoff Bidek is joining us here today, CMO, IBM, Watson. And we are talking about this, women leaders across variety of industries, geographically represented, pioneer work in artificial intelligence, AI. But what are we doing with it? So what we're doing with it is transforming business, maybe transforming industries, maybe doing something that is so out of the box, it's hard to even talk about. But that's why Michelle's here. Hey, Michelle, welcome to the show. <laughs> Thank you so much for having me, Dr. Pat. It's a pleasure. Yeah, when I when I said AI the other day in terms of mm -hmm. technology we're building for us, we're independent. So we don't have a corporation to tell us what to do or how to do it. And so when we build a network, a positive talk with 10 channels and then build a technology interface, somebody said mm -hmm. it's AI. And then when they said, what, what is that? I had to actually really dig deep and look it up. But that's why you're here today. AI today doesn't mean what it meant when the actual movie came out. So can you give us an update here and then tell us what women are doing a breakthrough? Absolutely. So, you know, artificial intelligence is becoming so fundamental to business and, and clearly in your business, it's driving dramatic advances across every industry. And we are living in an era, Dr. Pat, where every company is a technology company and where every leader is putting technology innovation, often in the form of AI, at the center of her agenda. So just to give you some context, last year, AI-related technologies contributed to trillion in U.S. dollars to the global economy, and by 2030, it has the potential to add almost 16 trillion. Why is that? Well, because companies view AI as an opportunity to unlock business value. All of this data that they have, they want to be able to utilize it for competitive advantage. Now, what's really interesting is that there's all of this opportunity, and yet adoption has been fairly slow. Why? Well, the technology, you know, it can produce magical outcomes, and I know we'll talk about some of this, but AI yeah. is not magic. It, it is a lot of hard work, and turning these aspirations yeah. into outcomes, <laughs> meaning that you've got to have the data, the talent, and the trust in the systems you're building. Uh, boy, you have hit the triangle of mm -hmm. overwhelm for most of us that are doing it. That's what I like <laughs> to call it. But, you know, but, but here's what I love about this, and I think, you know, maybe you can comment on this. I think what sure. also drives this, Michelle, if you can comment, is especially I can only talk for women because I'm a woman. 
What drives us is a passion that's based on a gap we see, a gap, G-A-P. And the gap is, this is what you're getting. This is what you want. Now, how do we do something to build it, to get it to you? And that's really what we're facing in an industry. And if I were owned by a larger media company, you and I would not even be talking, by the way. Just saying for that. Right, Um, right, right. We're not shackled by that, but we are shackled a little bit by those three things you mentioned. And I'd love for you to talk Mm -hmm. about how these honorees have busted through this. Yeah, so I am so excited about this women leaders in AI list. You know, Dr. Pat, there's this great saying, you can't be what you can't see. And in the field of artificial intelligence, frankly, it's dominated currently by men. Women make up an estimated 22% of the global AI workforce, and that number only gets smaller as you move up the leadership ranks. Why is this important? Well, AI is an actual reflection of who we are as people. So the recommendations, the decisions that we're making from the AI are based in the data, in the training, and that requires that you have diverse teams of people. Well, if only 22% of the global AI workforce is women, we're not creating diverse enough teams. So IBM has put a spotlight on women leaders from around the world who are first movers in AI for business. It gives us this opportunity to recognize and celebrate 40 women from a variety of industries, professions, and geographies who are pioneering the use of AI to drive real transformation in their business. We're talking about improving the customer experience. We're talking about driving greater operational efficiencies in those organizations and allowing their employees to do higher value work. There's some tremendous outcomes that these women are achieving through the use of artificial intelligence. So here's what I love about what we're saying. And and uh, this really points to something you said uh, earlier in, in talking about this and talking about diversity in women. Mm. Most people do not know what I'm about to say to you, and they don't know it because they're not us, right? Mm. But we've been watching something called moms, like a mother, Mm. moms, and now grandmoms Mm -hmm. in media, digital media. The latest Mm -hmm. information now shows 94% of all moms own a smartphone, and of 90% 98.4% of them own a smartphone. And what do you think they are plugged into? They are plugged into smart solutions. They are plugged into the Internet more times than anybody else. And the fastest growing segment of the population are women and grandmoms over 60 on the weekends. And yet there's mm-hmm. nothing for them in this media. So what I hear you saying about this is that these folks, these women, has stepped out of the box, looked at a need, and filled the gap, if I'm interpreting what you're saying correctly. And it's a gap that had to be filled. Absolutely. You know, when we brought these women together for a recognition event and we held it at our Watson Experience Center in New York, we heard stories from these women they touched on the importance of of starting with that desired outcome in mind. What problem was it they were trying to achieve? And ultimately, that problem was often in support of their customers, whether that's patients, whether that's their employees, or whether that's consumers who are doing business with them every day. And in many cases, because they're paving the way, 
they're introducing these new technologies into their organizations and they're, they're recognizing that we have to look at things like what new skills do we need to introduce within this organization? What new teams do we need to build? And how do we approach AI? We have to be far more agile. So these women are uncovering all of this, 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 these new ways of working that AI is enabling them to do. And it's having a difference in so many of their organizations. Well, let's do this. Two things, please. One is yeah. I would love to know how we can find more out, uh, find out more about this. But also, are you, are you able to share a little bit of the initiatives uh, that these women have led? Oh, I would love to. So, so let's just start with the URL, and then I'll come back to some of the examples. Yeah. So, okay. WW, so www.ibm.com slash Watson. That's where you can find profiles of all 40 women uh, who we've honored. But I want to share with you some really fascinating examples because we've got women on the list in telecommunications, finance, education, entertainment, but one example in healthcare, we've got Rachel Cordry. She's a pharmacy supervisor at Peninsula Regional Medical Center in Maryland, and she was tasked with overseeing the deployment of a drug information database from Watson Health. And her team combined that wealth of knowledge, that repository, with IBM Watson Assistant and incorporated it directly into the electronic medical record so that nurses and pharmacists at that center could query the system about medications compatibility and dosage without ever having to leave that record. That meant that they could spend more time focused on their patients. And last year, that system responded to more than 100,000 questions. It's been a game changer. And then you look at something like George Washington University. Donna Hill led an effort to deploy a chatbot that used Watson Assistant, and they named it Martha appropriately at George Washington University. But Martha has been incredible. Uh, Martha has helped to deflect 45% of the Tier 1 tickets from the call center. Now, think about that. These are students who are coming in. Maybe they get into their dorm room. Something isn't working right. They interact with Martha. They're getting answers that they need, uh, where they need to go. And so GWU not only expects substantial savings in resource costs and significant time savings for their employees, but they're providing a much better experience for the students, particularly those first-time students who are entering the university. Just so many amazing stories, Dr. Pat. I know. I was on the website, and I was fascinated by what I was looking at. I mean, and so many of them I think most of us can relate to at a very personal, Mm -hmm. practical level. But I think this is really what we're talking about, Michelle, right? We're talking about Mm -hmm. women, technology, artificial intelligence, and filling a need that, I have to say this, Mm -hmm. that women can uniquely define. And look, I've been doing this 15 years, and Mm -hmm. uh, most of my listening audience are are women. And they plug Mm -hmm. in because we're talking about things they want to know more about. And what you have is a stellar group of women that are not just talking about it, but they are developing it. I mean, you know, I love what you all have done because don't you feel that this is the tip of the innovation iceberg in this arena? Absolutely, absolutely. And I think that, you know, one of the things that we really need to focus on um, as women in business 
is gender equality and making sure that we're advancing women whenever possible. And it's important in all fields, but I will tell you that when it comes to AI, we're at a real inflection point. So AI plays such a huge role in shaping our society from the games that our kids are playing to what we're reading to what we're watching. And we know that when we include more diverse teams into our organizations, they're going to produce better results. But here's the, here's the catch. It becomes even more important when you consider how technology like AI is built. So when you've got these inclusive development teams that feature people with you know, varied backgrounds and experiences, they are far more likely to spot discrimination in AI and ensure that we are building fair and responsible AI solutions. So one of the things that I think is so important about the work that we're doing here is that not only can we inspire and energize others to adopt AI and make a true difference in their business, but also I think it's incumbent upon us to share that when businesses incorporate diversity into their leadership and into their technological development teams, they're going to see better innovation, they're going to realize greater outcomes for their employees, for their customers, and frankly, for society at large. Yeah, let me ask you this question because, um, mm. first of all, it's clear to me you are like right on top of this. You're like super excited, right? <laughs> <laughs> uh, because uh, here's something somebody said to me a long time ago. You can't take a person to a place you haven't gone yourself. And so mm. with me talking with you, you are for sure on the pulse of this, but you are this too. And that's what I love about this. It's because you two are driven by filling a gap, uh, supporting an initiative that drives this level of diversity forward, but more importantly, that puts in the hands of average, everyday people solutions that otherwise would not be affordable to them. See, this is really why I like this conversation, and I love the women that have contributed because most of the time, you don't have to find out that medical information. And boy, I'll tell you, I know what that's about. So let me ask mm -hmm. you this question. Where sure. do you go from here? What is the vision that you personally, Michelle, what do you see? And how do you see this moving the initiative even to a next level? Well, I'll tell you, there are a couple of things that excite me. Number one, um, I think as we see AI become even more pervasive across more industries and in more parts of the organization, freeing people up to do the work that they need to do um, and the work they want to do. So, so like in customer service, for example, let's use AI to address basic customer questions about password resets and account number lookup. Let's give people the opportunity to start to train the AI and take on new roles like conversational analysts and conversational um, architects, right? Let's, let's take processes that frankly are very time consuming, like a mortgage loan. Think about that, how long it takes for us to get approval on a mortgage loan. We have to fill out the paperwork, we have to submit it, we wait days. Let's take that process and take it from days down to minutes. But I'll also tell you personally and professionally what really excites me about what we're doing at IBM, but I think what we're doing in the industry and part of it um, comes from thinking about where the future is coming from, right? So this pipeline of incoming talent that we need to start thinking about, because I'll tell you, we have to think differently about how we educate the next generation of employees so that we can retain them, so that we can advance them. And we've got programs like P-TECH, 
pathways to technology, which are equipping the global workforce for these emerging new-collar jobs, all of the things that we're talking about. These are jobs that require specialist technical skills, but not always a traditional university degree. And so this new-collar program from IBM is one of the largest global initiatives of its kind, 200 P-TECH schools serving 125,000 students across 13 countries. And these students are graduating with a high school diploma, an associate's degree, and real-world skills to go out and tackle some of these challenges that we're facing in business utilizing tools and technology like AI. Yeah, I got to tell you something. You just made my day because people call me <laughs> Dr. Pat. But that happened late in life. It took me 13. Look, I barely graduated high school. I was homeless at 17. And so the bottom line is what you just said is something that we have to do more of. It took me 13 years to get my undergraduate degree and only because I was threatened not to get promoted in the phone company. And, you know, losing my job sent me back to school. And uh, what you're talking about, and, and, and by the way, what I'm doing today has nothing to do with my degree. You're in the same boat. I had a funny feeling about that because, you know, it takes a unique vision to step out of a box. Mm -hmm. And sometimes I think if, if, yeah, if we grow up in a box, we don't even know that there's an outside. So what you're talking about is beyond exciting. Isn't this, oh, I know you got to run. Isn't this the notion of creating more opportunity, and how can we get the word out about it? Because I know we're doing this, but definitely once our AI is done, we'll have a way to help you even more. But this is definitely the way, yeah? Yeah. Absolutely, absolutely. And I'm so excited by the potential and the possibilities when we look at things like PTAC, when we look at the talent that is emerging, when we look at the jobs that are being created, you know, I, I am so excited about the field that we are in, and, um, you know, it, it really is a critical inflection point for us. I think AI is yeah. going to really change the way that businesses operate. Yeah, no kidding. I want to thank you, Michelle. Thank you for today. Really, last question, personal message. What do you want to leave us with? Of course. Um, you know, I want to tell people that, if they are interested in something, they should go for it, right? This is like like you, this is not where I started out in my career, but I couldn't be more excited about the opportunity to help our clients, to help people, and to help society at large, and that's what AI is allowing us to do. Well, I hope somehow you're going to capture what these women say uh, and, and what they've said, yes. and uh, perhaps we can do something and play snippets of it, but let's share this information. Thank you, Michelle. Have a great rest of your day. You're awesome. Thank you so much, Dr. Pat. Great to speak with you. All right, everybody. I'm telling you, Michelle just did <laughs> Michelle just did for me what I have not been able to do for all of you. Let's take a short break. We'll be right back. <laughs> Despite all efforts, is your pursuit of emotional freedom not going so well? Are you still stressed and anxious? It must be getting harder and harder to work on these issues. Meet Dr. Friedman. His breakthrough seminar may be the solution you have been looking for. It provides you with the insights and tools to reopen lines of inner communication, address deeper subconscious roots of your challenges, and discover how self-compassion can truly quiet your fear. What medicine and research taught me is that we have all unlimited potential to heal, grow, and thrive. 
So learn more at drfriedman.com. That's D-R-F-R-I-E-D-E-M-A-N-N.com. And tune in to Dr. Freeman's Empowerment Radio every first and third Thursday at 9 a.m. for even more ways to live your life with courage, integrity, and trust in your own counsel. Hey, everybody. Welcome. Welcome. It's so great to have all of you tune us in, turn us on. I'm so excited about these segments that we've been doing now for about a year. And what do they do? Well, first of all, thanks to all of you telling me what you've learned from them, how you possibly have even saved lives. That's why we do it. Today, I have got Dr. Patrick Bloom, and I got a fabulous, fabulous person joining us here today. It's going to give you up close and personal, Debbie, about what lung disease is. Today's show, think about this. You know, can summer activities, can they, can they result in exposure to a bacteria? And can that bacteria cause chronic lung conditions? Well, here's what we know. And you've heard me talk about this in terms of myself, my family, a couple of friends recently. This is something everybody should be aware of. Joining me here today, yeah, uh, somebody that knows not just about the topic, but lives it reads it, studies it, teaches it, and gets the word out. And then Debbie, who is living and breathing and studying and getting the word out. Dr. Flume, Debbie, great to have both of you here. Great to be here. Thank you. So people are like, what? What do you mean? What do you mean exposure to bacteria? Now, you know, the reason I say that is I don't know how much you all know about me. Of course, I'm Dr. Pat, but that, that's not the only show I do. Um, I was an advocate for Lyme disease like a gazillion years ago. So we do a lot of shows on what people should know about bacteria, what they should know about lung conditions, especially if you live in a place where <laughs> a lot of this going on. But Dr. Flume, from your perspective, you know, I don't know that I thought I'd be talking to you in this deck in, in this year about this, but this is something that is rapidly rapidly accelerating. We are getting a lot of traction, a lot of more patients who are being diagnosed with NTM lung disease. Although it's a rare condition, the incidence is actually increasing. I think that's in large part because there's greater awareness, and so physicians are starting to add that to their differential and considering that in terms of um, making the diagnosis. So, Debbie, for you, let me ask you a question. Yes. How shocking was this to you and your life? It was very shocking because it's something I never heard of. So I've had a chronic uh, cough for many, many years, and it probably took 15 years or so before I got the correct diagnosis. I was misdiagnosed with other things. Some doctors thought that there's nothing wrong with me, just, oh, it's just a cough, but it wasn't just a cough. So then when they told me I have NTM, I said, what's that? And uh, there seemed to be a lack of information. But uh, thank goodness, over the years, there's been a great deal more. So I'm grateful to have a name put to this condition and have a treatment and feel so much better than I did before. Oh, uh, yeah, so let's get right into this, because right now, right about now, Debbie, people are like, what did she just say she had? Uh, <laughs> Dr. Fume. Give us the breakdown. What should people know about this? 
So what we're talking about is uh, NTM lung disease. So NTM are non-tuberculous mycobacteria. These are bacteria which are actually rather common. They're in the environment, they're in the soil, they're in the water supply. In that sense, we are all being exposed. Uh, some areas of the country, perhaps there's greater exposure than others. Most of us are not going to develop infection. This is still a rare disease, but there are patients who are vulnerable to developing infection. Mm -hmm. And if they get infection and develop NTM lung disease, it can be chronic and progressive and actually quite severe. So, Dr. Flume, I want to ask you something about this, because I think we have become more aware of, the, of what you just said. I think we have become more aware. But I also think that from a very practical perspective, People need to not just be aware, but be aware of the symptoms. So can we talk about those from your perspective, Dr. Flume, and then from you, Debbie, your perspective? Because sometimes they're different, right? They can vary quite a bit from patient to patient. Mm -hmm. And so typical symptoms associated with NTM lung disease are respiratory, and it's a cough, but it's a persistent cough, not a cough for a couple of weeks, but one that persists, sometimes is productive of sputum. Uh, there may be other systemic, nonspecific symptoms like low-grade fevers or night sweats, losing weight, or this overwhelming sense of fatigue, kind of like having the flu all the time. And so because these symptoms are nonspecific, it's why doctors oftentimes think they could be due to something else. Mm -hmm. It's not always going to be NTM lung disease, but we're trying to get people to consider that in their differential to make that diagnosis because it's very typical of these patients, as Debbie had suggested, it may take a long time before the diagnosis is made. Mm. What were your symptoms, Debbie? So my, my, my symptoms were chronic cough for years. I can think back to when I was in high school, and believe it or not, at that point, smoking was allowed on the school bus. So I'd enter the school bus and start coughing my brains out. And um, that was kind of my first clue, although I didn't pay much attention. But as I said, um, I also had, I had sweats, I had fever, and I was diagnosed with pneumonia. And uh, that's what got everybody uh, on, on the stick kind of working to see what this was. And, and so many doctors that I had gone to way back when had no idea of this condition. And I was fortunate uh, to find somebody that did. And uh, I, I am grateful that more and more doctors are learning about it, and uh, we have more communications among patients, too. Well, can we talk for a minute about this, the, the serious nature of it, and then we'll talk about the solution? Um, because I think that, you know, in the world we live in, we're so busy, right? We're yes. so busy. We're busy, 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 busy. We don't even want to think about it. Um, and we're going to make sure everybody's got a website. So we're busy. We don't want to think about it. So we go into this place of denial. But this is not something that we can fool around with, Debbie, because your life changed. It did. But um, as much as you don't like to have a diagnosis like this, because there are all different degrees of NTM. When I speak to people in support groups um, that I've uh, established, and some of them, uh, the ones who are lucky, were diagnosed early, like me. Uh, but there are others that weren't, were not diagnosed early, and uh, their, con their condition and their symptoms are much worse than mine. But uh, it, it, is, it can be difficult, but if there's anything I can say about it, it's to be proactive and to, be, and to stay positive, because that is very, very helpful. Also, there's information 
out there. Uh, I'm not saying to go to any old place on the internet because that could be um, that could be non-correct and it could also be scary. But there's mm -hmm. a great website called aboutntm.com, which uh, gives a great deal of information and links to just about any other resource that you're looking for. Yeah. Um, first of all, let me thank you both for being here. And I, I think it's great to make sure we're giving out that information, right? Um, I want to ask you, Dr. Flume, a question. Um, are there situation or condition, so to speak, that would make people more susceptible? M meaning, does exposure vary based on where you are, what you're doing? Is that a factor? So there are... Um greater number of cases in certain parts of the country and these have been associated where there's greater water content so many of the diagnoses are made in coastal regions uh, but there are some states that have a greater prevalence and so the association with water is is, is real um, the we're all essentially exposed to these bacteria because they're in the soil and the water but there are patients who are far more vulnerable to developing infection with this, this organism. And they typically have chronic lung diseases, so chronic obstructive pulmonary disease, COPD, mm -hmm. such as emphysema, uh, bronchiectasis, cystic fibrosis, immune deficiencies, chronic aspiration. They've got an environment in their lung that is more suitable for an opportunist like uh, NTM, and they be develop more vulnerable, they're more vulnerable to developing infection. Mm. Um, there are a lot of things we could probably talk about today, and I, I want to talk about a couple things that folks should know about, what they should do. I want to talk about that this is what this is what you should do. But before I do that, I want to mention the website again, about ntm.com, about ntm.com. Lots of information there. Um, there. There are some things that I think that folks may or may not know about. What I mean by that is that certainly we're going to find a lot of information out there that you all have provided us with, right? Um, the resources are available. I want to start with you, Debbie. What surprised you most about this? I think uh, not having heard about it at that point in time, but um, fortunately, we do have more information, and um, as I say, that website that you just mentioned is the best place to go. Thank you. How Thank about you. you? How about you, Dr. Plume? I want to ask you the question about surprises, but I also want to ask you the question about the vision, you know, the progression of solutions for this. Where, what can we be most hopeful about? Well, the thing I'm most hopeful about is that the awareness has risen uh, we're seeing an increase in number of centers dedicated, uh, dedicating clinics to, the, to be focused on NTM. Uh, there's a lot more research which is available, and I, I anticipate that that's going to be um, the beginning of developing much better opportunities and best practices for the treatment of patients. What I want people to sort of go home with is that just because they have a cough doesn't mean they have NTM, but if symptoms mm -hmm. are persisting, they want to make sure they're having the right conversation with their physicians to know if this diagnosis should be on their radar and then getting the proper testing to get diagnosed. Wow. I want to thank you both. One last question for each of you. I'd like to know what your personal message is, what you'd like to leave us with today. Uh, I would say be proactive and be positive. And I would say there's great hope. There's a lot of activity going on, so the future is bright. 
All right, website. Give that website again. AboutNTM.com. Awesome. Thank you both. Thank I'm Dr. You. Pat. Let's take a short break. This is very, very important, everybody. Please go check out the website. We'll be right back. Are you ready to finally feel empowered and knowledgeable in your political stance? Let Marsha Padilla Goad educate you on exactly how important grassroots advocacy is in a relatable way to all parties and all perspectives. Tune in to Grassroots Advocacy Radio with Marsha every first Tuesday of the month at 12 p.m. Pacific and 3 p.m. Eastern on TransformationTalkRadio.com. For more, visit DynamicsInPublicAffairs.com. Hey, everybody. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Welcome to the Dr. Pat Show. This is our good news segment. You know, many of you have heard me talk about my family, some of the health challenges, but one of the things you haven't heard me talk about is how I lost one of my favorite uncles to heart disease. And, you know, the world we live in today, we are learning that there are so many things that we didn't know 10 years ago, five years ago. And today, I am thrilled to have Dr. Kevin Campbell join us here today, internationally recognized cardiologist, not just to talk about what we can do to make massive changes, but what we have learned. Uh, Dr. Campbell, great to have you. Welcome to the show. Thanks so much for having me today. It's a pleasure. Um, You know, we didn't even know what we didn't know uh, several decades ago. And I think that the pace by which we are getting more aware, science is helping us, all of you out in the field are helping us, we are on an accelerated pace. So I would love to hear from you, where are we now and what have we learned? Well, you know, heart disease remains a big public health problem, even though we've made enormous strides over the last two decades. Right now, Cardiovascular disease is the number one killer of both men and women in the U.S. today. And believe it or not, half a million people every year have sudden cardiac death related to heart disease. So even though we've made strides with treatment and diagnosis of heart disease, we've got a long ways to go when it comes to prevention. Well, you know, I wasn't kidding when I talked about when I talked about my 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 uncle. Uh, but I lost my um, I lost my my stepmom to a massive heart attack. And my dad um, uh, to to heart disease. So, I mean, this is not something that we just take lightly. You know, here we are today. You are out in the field. I want to know from your perspective, what are some of the facts? What have we learned? And what is it that we here in this country, if we could, what do we really need to know about what to do and what to stop doing? You know, I think one of the most important things that we've learned is that every single American needs to take stock in their own heart health and take control. And the first step is knowledge and engagement with your physician. You need to know what the risk factors are. The risk factors for heart disease are cholesterol, high blood pressure, uh, obesity, uh, family history, smoking, Uh, All of these things, diabetes, come together to put you at extreme risk. Believe it or not, right now, over 50% of Americans have at least three risk factors for heart disease. So what we know is that these are things that we can make a difference in. You can't change your genes, but you can impact your habits and your lifestyle. And if we can do that in combination with the wonderful science and therapies and treatments that we have, it's my hope that we can start focusing more on prevention. My job is to put myself as a cardiologist out of business because we get this message out. 
You know, I have been for a long time, just so you know, I lost my sister on a hospital floor and she was at about 450 pounds. And, you know, we now know that obesity is not just about food. It's about the mental, the, you know, the, 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 the genetics. It's about so many things. But we now know that what's happening in this country in particular in terms of those statistics are through the roof. And, you know, it's interesting to hear you say that that is one of the factors attributing to this. What can we say to folks about the, the whole hearts challenge? What can we say to say to folks, look, start somewhere? You know, I think that's key. What we're trying to do with the whole hearts challenge, Honey Nut Cheerios has partnered with My Fitness Pal, which is a fitness tracker application to promote heart health. What we're trying to do is show you that making very small changes in lifestyle and diet can go a long ways towards improving your health. For example, eating a bowl of Honey Nut Cheerios in the morning gives you almost a gram of soluble fiber and gives you all these whole grains, which we know can help lower cholesterol. It's important to also do small things when it comes to exercise. Walk to the mailbox, park in the parking lot at the back of the parking lot and walk into the shopping mall rather than looking for that front row seat. You can go to Cheerios.com forward slash hearts dash matter to sign up for this challenge. You can win prizes up to and including $5,000. It's a lot of fun. And really, we just want to show you that these small, simple things can go a very long ways into improving your heart health. Okay, so, you know, what you have here at the website, if we can just talk about this a minute, because, you know, part of the part of the deal is that people say, I don't have enough tools. I don't have enough to plug into, but this is for an entire family to do. So let's stop for a minute, if you don't mind. We have got to get all members of a family involved in this, because when it comes to heart disease, or it, it's not a one-person issue, is it? Absolutely not. Families working together to improve their heart health makes the most sense. So children model the behavior of adults. So if as adults, we model heart healthy behaviors and we don't provide constant fast food and high calorie dense and nutrient poor foods, then, you know, we're going to go a long ways towards creating that in the next generation. Childhood obesity, as you referenced, is at an all-time high and increasing. So this is a whole, uh, an overall family uh, or peer group uh, way of changing the way you do things. And I think it's important to remember that then you can hold each other accountable. Um, you can make sure that it's fun. And it also promotes, you know, some bonding time with the kids. You know, a couple things is when I go to the website, and I just want to be very, <clears throat> very clear about the solution that you have. When I go to the website, and let's mention it again, if we could, is you're going to find a lot of tools here, including recipes, products, what, you know, and how to get on track. Uh, can I ask you a question? Look, you are one of the leading experts in this field. You know more about this. You know more about this, Dr. Campbell, than most people learn in a lifetime, maybe more lifetimes. I got two questions for you. What are you most hopeful about? That's the first question. And what is your greatest concern? Great questions. I am most hopeful, and what I desire most from patients is engagement. I want everyone to take control of their own heart health 
meaning educate yourself about the risk factors, engage with a a professional, a, a healthcare professional, and understand how you can modify that risk. I think I'm very hopeful that I can put myself out of business if we stick to basics. Yes, I can go to the operating room and I can put stents in or I can put in a pacemaker or defibrillator. I can do all these fancy, expensive things, but let's not have to do those. I'm most hopeful that we can stamp out heart disease through these types of preventative measures. What I'm most concerned about is the fact that it is often so easy to eat poorly. You know, fast foods and grab and goes and things like that are just so bad for you. And I'm also concerned about the rising uh, numbers of obese children that we have in the United States. Yeah. That really yeah. concerns me. Yeah, I'm right there with you. Um, and that's why I really wanted to point out that this is a family affair. And it's a family affair in terms of, you know, your immediate family, but also providing support. Hey, one of the things that I know does not work, and I want to talk about this, is uh, when we have situations where we're talking about some of these factors, you know, teasing kids, teasing people about this, this is not the direction to go. Um, let's talk about a couple of solutions that we can get people to do right now. Lowering cholesterol seems to be for most people like their head, pretty much their heads feel like it's going to explode every time they hear that. But it doesn't have to be that way. You're exactly right. There's some very simple things. The first step is find out what your cholesterol is, talk with your physician, and understand what the best way to treat it is. In some cases, you have to have medicines. In all cases, you want to change your diet and you want to become more physically active. Physical activity increases your HDL or good cholesterol, which is cardioprotective. Having a good diet, like the Honey Nut Cheerios bowl of cereal in the morning, can actually help lower cholesterol. And that's an important thing to note. So it doesn't have to be this big overhaul. I'll share a personal story. I have high cholesterol. Part of mine is genetic. I have to take medicines for cholesterol, but I also eat the Honey Nut Cheerios and I exercise every day. So in combination, now all my numbers are perfect, but it, it took a lot of work. It took combination of working with my doctor and also changing my lifestyle a little bit at the time. It's not everything changes at once. Yeah, you know, I grew up with, uh, my mama was from the South, right? And I think you know that you're from there too, right? Yes, ma'am. My mama was from the South. And there's nothing that I enjoy more than Southern cooking. And my mom was masterful at it. And, you know, <clears throat> even with that, there are ways to modify so that we can still eat the things we love and still take great care of ourselves. I mean, there's nothing that I love more than a good batch of collard greens. I don't know about you. <laughs> well, I'm from the <laughs> South as well, but you know, it's everything in moderation. If we tell yeah. our patients they cannot have X, Y, and Z, we're gonna fail. If we say, please don't have X, Y, and Z all the time, have it you know, twice a month, then we do really, really well. I think it's everything in moderation. All right, we got a couple of minutes. I gotta ask you this. After all of the opportunities we have to be active. And I got to tell you, I played in a table tennis tournament over the mm -hmm. weekend. And what do we need to do to get our kids and our families to move their booties? You have to make it fun. Do things like uh, go throw Frisbee or, you know, I'm a, I'm a kid of the, 
the 80s. So, you know, go show your kids and grandkids that you still know how to roller skate. Do something that's interesting, that'll make people laugh. You know, actually have a singing competition in the backyard. You know, deep breathing and, and singing can actually improve your cardiovascular health. Make it fun. It doesn't have to be an hour on the spin bike. I like the spin bike, but it doesn't have to be that way. And is walking still the, uh, you know, uh, the favorite go-to? And you know, everybody says walking, walking. I can't walk for an hour, but I don't think that's what we're saying anymore. No, actually, the CDC says 150 minutes of cardiovascular exercise per week. That averages out to about 10 minutes a day. You can have a brisk walk, 10 minutes a day. That's all you need. That's a good start. The key is to do something, move. If we can get you moving, one day you walk to the mailbox, the next day you make a lap around the block, the next day, who knows, you go to a spin class. All right, look, one last question, personal message, and please, please tell folks how they can find out more. And thank you so much, uh, Dr. Campbell, for everything. Personal message website. So what you really want to get to is Cheerios.com forward slash hearts dash matter. Sign up for the Whole Hearts Challenge. And my message to you is just move. Think about your family. Think about yourself. Think about your loved ones. Let's all promote heart health together. And, and let's, let's keep eating those collard greens. Yes, ma'am. All right. Thank you, Dr. Campbell. I'm Dr. Pat. We're going to take a short break, everybody. We'll be right back. Hey, everybody. Listen, you all have heard me talk about what it is we look at with our health, what we put in our bodies, what the world says out there about everything from vitamins to aspirin. But here's what I want to say. How do we make sense of the new aspirin guidelines? You know what? Yes, there are new guidelines. Dr. Paul Gerbel joining me here today, Director of Interventional Cardiology and Cardiovascular Medicine Research, Professor of Medicine at John Hopkins School of Medicine. He is here for very good reason. It is confusing and it is important. Uh, Dr. Gerbel, thank you for today. Am I overstating this when I say it is confusing and it is, it, it is important? I never thought in a million years I'd be saying that about aspirin. Well, you know, Dr. Busilli, you raise a very important issue uh, about the, the, this, the um, confusion that is out there regarding aspirin after uh, the coverage of these new guidelines that has caused confusion amongst uh, patients and amongst physicians. We've received many calls in my office from patients asking, you know, what do I, what do, I do with my aspirin therapy? Because they're confused about what they read in the, in the, in the lay press and what they've heard on, on TV and on radio. But let me just make this one important um, point and deliver this message that patients are on aspirin, if administered by a physician for a good reason. And um, stopping aspirin or changing the course of aspirin can have very important consequences uh, for the patient, such as the occurrence of a stroke and a heart attack. And it's important to distinguish between primary prevention and secondary prevention. Primary prevention, of course, has to do with the prevention of a first event. That is the prevention of a first heart attack or a first stroke. And that is what the guideline update is addressing. Now, the guideline update is not addressing secondary prevention. And secondary prevention has to do with the effect of aspirin and the guidelines for aspirin in patients who've already had a heart attack and who've already had a stroke to prevent a second event. And it's in this particular population 
where the risk of stopping aspirin therapy can have very dangerous consequences, such as an increased relative risk of a second heart attack or stroke of about 40 to 60%. So the, the important message I'd like to deliver is if you're on aspirin, stay on the aspirin therapy. And if you have any questions about your aspirin therapy, don't change the therapy based on your own decisions. Talk to your doctor, have a discussion with your doctor, and then proceed thereafter. But aspirin is an important uh, drug to many patients, particularly the patient for secondary uh, prevention of another event. Oh, you know, I, what you're talking about, first of all, I love the way you broke this down into very simple terms, right? Because we are talking to people that are not doctors and they just want to know, wait a minute, you know, I am confused. I don't know what to do. But I also want to say that um, for those of you listening, I want to send you to a website which has a lot of information. I really appreciate the folks at Bayer for doing this. BayerAspirin.com, B-A-Y-E-R-A-S-P-I-R-I-N.com. And the reason I'm sending you all over there is threefold. One, this is a short interview. You're not going to get all the information in 10 minutes. Two, more than we're able to talk about today, we're talking about aspirin for your heart, for stroke prevention, for saving lives, and for pain relief. So when you go over there, you're going to find a lot more information than Dr. Gerbel and I are talking about today. Um, let's get to a couple of quick things. First and foremost, talk about the relationship between aspirin and cardiovascular disease events, because I think this is still confusing for people, but yet we have found out now through science, super important. Well, very important uh, topic. And the the evidence base to use aspirin for prevention of a second event, that is in patients who've already had a heart attack and who've already had a stroke, uh, is very strong. And so the, this is the, refers to the treatment of patients who've had heart attack and stroke with aspirin. It's in this population of per, patients particularly uh, that any change in aspirin therapy could have very bad consequences, such as the occurrence of another heart attack and another stroke. Secondary prevention also refers to patients who've had stents put in their heart, where again, stopping aspirin could have a serious clotting risk of a, of a clot formation inside of the stent. Patients who've had bypass surgery and patients who've had, um, who've undergone uh, vascular such, surgery, such as carotid endarterectomy to open up the blood vessel to the head. Uh, aspirin has been shown in these patients to, to play a very important role. Now, this population of patients uh, uh, should not deviate from their aspirin therapy, nor should the patients who are receiving aspirin for primary prevention. And again, primary prevention has to do with the, with the prevention of a first uh, event. Uh, these patients are on aspirin after the physician determines that they have a high predicted cardiovascular risk. And again, the final message is uh, that any decision making with regards to aspirin should be made by the treating physician, that patients should not make these decisions on their own. Well, what I, what I love is the information that people find when they go to the Bayer site. You know, one of the things I was looking at, and I was shocked by this doctor, where I saw um, an, a, a statistic uh, that said that, you know, a doctor directed, very clear, a doctor directed aspirin regimen can help reduce the risk of recurrent heart attack by 31%. Um, that is staggering 
for many people to think about. But of course, it's not appropriate for everyone. So you have to talk to your doctor before you begin. But you also have to talk to your doctor before you stop. And I think that we don't do either of those. I was also struck by the fact that the statistics for stroke is 22%, right? No, you're exactly right. And when you look at the, the, the evidence base for that, which goes back um, to decades of clinical trials with uh, aspirin, you know, we refer to it as the workhorse uh, antiplatelet drug or antithrombotic drug or anti-clotting drug. It's really based on the evidence that you've just mentioned, a, a significant effect on reducing heart attack and stroke in patients who've already had a heart attack or a stroke. So it's, it, I think a lot of people may think, you know, because they can get it over the counter, that it's not an important drug. It is indeed a very important drug, and that any, um, any deviation from the aspirin therapy can have serious uh, consequences. And you also made the important point that, you know, patients should never make decisions about medications, starting them or stopping them, whether it's aspirin or whatever, uh, until they speak to their physician. I know we've got a minute or so left here, um, and I sent people to the Bayer website, Bayer, B-A-Y-E-R, folks. Um, go look at BayerAspirin.com. And the reason I'm sending you there is there's lots of information that we're not going to get to today. I know in the last minute or so, there's so much to talk about, but I got to ask you, what is your top three? If you were leaving, were leaving our listeners with the top three folks, this is what you should do. What would that be? Or this is what you should know. What would that be? So what the patient needs to know is if they're on aspirin therapy, they should talk to their treating physician if they have any questions about the aspirin therapy. They should not ever stop the therapy, whether it's aspirin or any other medication, without talking to the treating physician. Similarly, they should not start aspirin therapy until they have a discussion with their treating physician. Those are the two really important messages I want to deliver. And I guess the third thing that I would say is uh, please vet or verify what you hear on the, on the news or in the, in the lay press with your treating physician. Don't make the decisions on your own. Um, thank you for today. One last question. Um, outside the website, what's your personal message? What do you want to say to folks today? How important is this to you personally, doctor? It's very important to me personally because I care for patients with cardiovascular disease Aspirin plays an important role in their therapy, and they should never deviate from their medical regimen until they talk to their, their treating physician. Wow. Hey, everybody. Dr. Paul Ger, uh, Gerbel joining me here today, Gerbel. And one of the things I want to say, he is doing this 24-7 to get the word out. That's how important it is. Please, please, please look at, listen to what we've said today. Go to the Bayer Aspirin website. Check it out for yourself. And believe me, if you've got any questions whatsoever, pick up the phone and call your doctor. Thank you, Dr. Paul. Thank you so much. Have a great day. Thank you, Dr. Busilli. Have a good day. All right, everybody. That's our good news segment. We're going to take a short break. We'll be right back. The preceding audio was via a Skype call.